Footing. This is Dove Tuzman. A couple of interesting weeks there with Rabbi Simon Jacobson talking about hypocrisy in the rabbinate, a difficult subject. It especially uh, hurts us as people who have faith as a central part of their lives when religious authorities or religious authority in general at a theoretical level seems to somehow be off kilter, not in line with the underlying spirit of our faith. At least it can seem that way. We're in that vein again tonight. As always in the show, we try to tackle subjects that cause us consternation. This isn't easy stuff. That's not the point of this show. It's casting a light on the darker spaces at times and allowing us to live a holistic life of faith that involves embracing the complex. In this case, we're going to talk about religious divorce and specifically the phenomenon that happens in our community, particularly in the more observant ends of the Jewish community, where you have women that are kind of in limbo, that are not granted a divorce. And yes, in traditional Jewish, under traditional Jewish law, halacha, a man actually has to grant a woman divorce. And yes, I know we've talked about LGBTQ issues on the show and we're not discounting the possibility of those types of relationships out there because we know they do exist. But tonight we're talking about halacha as it pertains to men and women and particularly around the process of obtaining a get, a divorce document under Jewish religious law to obtain a divorce. And what happens when that isn't granted by the man? It's this phenomenon called aguna or agunot. This is, these are women that are chained, literally. It's like the concept of being chained or anchored to a past life to their pre-divorce status because they can't, can't remarry. You've probably heard about this in popular culture, but our point here is not to sensationalize, but to get, dig in around a solution to this problematic issue. It's been a problematic issue, by the way, for arguably thousands of years. There have been scholars in uh, our faith who have been tackling this complex issue of the man granting a divorce, what happens when the woman is effectively in limbo when that divorce is not granted. I want to thank in advance a couple of wonderful guests who are ready to tackle the difficult. Let me start by introducing a new guest on Equal Footing, Keshet Starr. Keshet is a lawyer. She's the CEO of the Organization for the Resolution of Agonot, or ORA. It's a nonprofit organization addressing the kind of Jewish divorce refusal that we just referred to as the Aguna. It's a crisis, and they address it on a case-by-case basis worldwide. So it's an advocacy organization, but actually works with individual women who are in this circumstance. 
Ed Ora, Keshet oversees this advocacy as well as early intervention initiatives designed to assist individuals seeking a Jewish divorce and prevention initiatives to eliminate abuse of the traditional Jewish divorce process. She's written for outlets like the Times of Israel, the Jewish Forward, Haaretz. She frequently presents on issues related to Jewish divorce, domestic abuse, and the intersection between civil and religious divorce processes. Keshet has authored an academic work focused on getting on, on the refusal of a get or the Jewish divorce document and domestic abuse. She's a Wexner Field Fellow. She's named one of the Jewish Week's 36 under 36. Just an amazing person. A graduate of the University of Michigan and the University of, of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, Keshet, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on for the first time. Hopefully not the last. Can you hear us, Keshet? Yes. There you are. Welcome to Equal Footing. I'm going to introduce your, I don't know about sparring partner, but your talking partner here tonight, but she's been on the program before. She's a veteran, Rivka Slonim, Rebetzin Rivka Slonim. She's the Associate Director of the Roar Chabad Center of Jewish Student Life at Binghamton University. She co-founded that with her husband, Rabbi Aaron Slonim, many years ago. I won't say when, but decades ago. Rivka is a self-described Hasidic feminist. She's an internationally known lecturer and, at, and activist. She's the editor of Total Immersion, a mikvah anthology. She's been on the show talking about the mikvah before, as well as Bread and Fire, Jewish Women Find God in the Everyday. She recently co-authored Holy Intimacy, the Heart and Soul of Jewish Marriage. She serves on the editorial board of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute, uh, JLI, and on the executive boards of several other academies and institutes. She's a senior lecturer at uh, Baishana Women International, an adult Jewish educational enterprise described as a university without walls. Rifka, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Rifka, can you start out? There may be some listeners who are like, uh, tonight's not for me. I don't really, you know... Uh, I don't, I'm whatever, I'm reform, I'm conservative, this isn't, I don't have to worry about this stuff. Can you speak to our perhaps less uh, observant listeners and explain to them in brief what the principles are of religious marriage and the principles of religious divorce in like a really accessible way we can all understand? I can only try to do that and try to do that as quickly as possible. I think we have to begin first and foremost, by framing our discussion tonight about Jewish marriage and divorce within the larger context of Jewish life, law, and law. And the reason I say that is because in our wider culture, marriage is perceived as a lifestyle choice. But within Judaism, marriage is considered a mandate, a mitzvah, that's a Hebrew word, that means a God-given commandment. Uh, Interestingly, and we'll come back to this, that is incumbent upon a man. And as with all other God-given commandments, there are rules that govern marriage, as well as rules that govern its dissolution and divorce. I lead with this because we postmoderns are accustomed to the rubric of marriage being more malleable. And interestingly, Elizabeth Gilbert points out in her book, Committed. Speak for yourself, Rivka. I don't know if I'm a postmodern. <laughs> okay, then. I will try to I love that. that. We postmoderns. I'm going to use that in the show. Uh, so Gilbert points out, um, on the she wrote this, I, of course, you know, I'm thinking a lot of your listeners have read her book or watched the movie Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a less 
well-known book called Committed that's fascinated on the subject of marriage as a construct, and she points out that marital paradigms have always been changing over the centuries. In fact, they did so constantly and swiftly. And I feel like in our, in our present day, that's all the more acute. We're raised with the possibility of choosing one of 2,000 breakfast cereals. That's only the cold ones. We expect everything to be customized to our likings and specifications. And Jewish law in general, and therefore Jewish marriage and Jewish divorce, doesn't quite work that way. So that's the first thing I would say. Okay. Um, yeah. So the basic... Because it's important to understand the dissolution of the institution. I think it's important to understand the constitution of the institution. And one of the, one of the things that's interesting about the Jewish and generally Abrahamic religious view on, on marriage is that its primary, correct me if I'm wrong, its primary purpose is procreation. Well, you're wrong on that. I'm wrong. um, I think that's a very important purpose. Um, but marriage, and, and, and yes, the hope and the prayer and the expectation is that in many, if not most cases, there will be children, um, but Jewish law sees value in the construct of the marital bond that transcends the fruit of that bond. Uh, so marriage in and of itself is considered one of the most important things. Now, specifically, to get closer to our, our um, subject tonight, and this is what's a little bit surprising or, and abrasive for us. Okay, we're going to say moderns as opposed to postmoderns. <laughs> Marriage within Torah, within Jewish law, is not a bilateral agreement. Like I mentioned earlier, it's a responsibility incumbent upon a Jewish man. Mm-hmm. The marriage is thus unilateral. A man consecrates his wife. He gives her something called a ketubah, a marriage contract, mm-hmm. which is actually the most ancient prenuptial agreement on record. And if and when the marriage should dissolve, he must give her a bill of divorce, known by its Aramaic name, a get. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to and- go down this rabbit hole, but I think it's interesting for listeners to note that in the Talmud and in ancient kind of rabbinical Judaic wisdom, the the man there are a whole bunch of obligations that are set upon the man in marriage some of which are you know feel very archaic to even read today but how you know the the portion of fruit and vegetables that are provided to the women each day the sufficient you know wood for cooking this type of thing there's a whole list of things from clothing to physical obligations to home and household and they all are written in the framework of what the man needs to provide I think um, that's interesting because it, it kind of flows from and is consistent with the idea of the of the man providing the ketubah, the the marriage contract, and also the the facilitating and granting the get, the marriage dissolution. Correct, and you're right that reading uh, the law surrounding ketubah, you know, a lot of it does sound so archaic, and yet on the other hand, you know, there are very important parts of it that are so progressive. You know, for instance, I think in, certainly in ancient rubrics, but even today I am sad to say a lot of men see sexual intimacy as their right, mm. and it's almost like their wife's obligation. Whereas according to the Ketubah, a man is obligated to give his wife sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm, it's yeah. his obligation and her privilege. We've talked about that before in a program. But on, we digress. On, 
Oh, yeah, right. but it's, I think it's 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 related because there are. I don't. Right. I'm going to ask you guys in a moment of the kind of the reasons that are typically kind of where gets are withheld and what the reasons are. But there's at least a popular kind of um, uh, bias out there or stereotype is the word I'm looking for that it's like Jewish men who are not kind of getting the intimacy that they need from from their their wife, and that's certainly not supported in, in Jewish law. I mean, she if she withholds it and does so in a malicious manner for no good reason at all, you know, that could be reason for him to start divorce proceedings. But then again, if he withholds it from her, that's reason for her to start divorce proceedings. So intimacy is seen as very important and critical. It's interesting because, you know, Jewish law does conjure a, um, a model of a ketubah, where a woman comes into marriage and she says she has her own assets, she has her own resources, and she'll take care of her own food and medicinal needs, her clothing, her, um, you know, her shelter. She doesn't need her husband to do any of this, and she will hold on to her own assets. And that is a, that can be a halakha ketubah. But if a woman comes in and says, oh, you can take care of my food and my medicinal needs, my clothing, my shelter, but I'll take care of my own sexual needs, no thank you. There is no such Jewish um, marriage contract because intimacy is seen as so critical to, to their relationship. But in any case, if the marriage should dissolve, a civil divorce is necessary, but it's not enough mm. from the perspective of Jewish law for their souls to be extricated from that union. Only right. a get can do that. So the civil divorce, the secular divorce process, which can be different in different jurisdictions depending on where that Jewish couple is living in the world, is necessary but insufficient and this cashit is where you step in <laughs> so as both a, a lawyer and a religious activist we're going to need to take our first break in in a moment but do you do both do you work with couples on both the secular divorce and the religious divorce process Essentially, a lot of what we do at ORA is help integrate the two streams together. Very often what's happening is that that someone might be getting one stream of advice from their rabbi and another stream of advice from their attorney, and if they try to follow all the advice at the same time, it cancels each other out. It doesn't work. And so part of what we do, we're not representing anyone, either in court or in Beitan, in a religious court, but what we do instead is help people figure out how do we integrate these systems together so that you're in a position of strength strategically and the systems aren't working against each other. Got it. We're going to get into that. We've covered the marriage part. Now we're going to send most, spend most of the rest of, pro- of the program talking about the divorce process because that is the focus here in the religious divorce process. I want to give out the numbers quickly before our first break. The number to call in is 718 303 9090. That's 718-303-9090. We are live on the air. We're here with Akeshit Star and Rivka Slonim talking about religious divorces and specifically the unfortunate phenomenon of women who are kind of in a limbo state and not granted the religious divorce, otherwise known as Agunot. Um, call in, share us, share your, your personal stories, your opinions, your, your experiences in this area. You don't have to say your name. You can do so anonymously. You can also text or WhatsApp in a question or comment. That's a different number. Please don't call this number. This is just for SMS or WhatsApp 917 
and we'll try to get to it on the air, 917-428-4062, and we'll be right back. Sitting here in limbo, but I know it won't be long. Sitting here in limbo, like a bird. Oh, that's one of my favorite musical choices on this show in years. Thank you, Leah. Uh, okay, let's... Uh, honor a sponsor, sponsor for a long time now on this network for this program and other programs. It's Manhattan Medical. Manhattan Medical, like this show, tries to tackle difficult subjects without any shame, trying to get to resolution. In their case, it's around erectile dysfunction. It is not something to be ashamed of. It affects around two-thirds of men in their lifetime. It can be emotionally painful and obviously affects the intimate dynamic with couples. Manhattan Medical is particularly sensitive to the need, sensitive to the needs of the community that this program addresses. You don't have to be in Manhattan. You don't even have to be in the New York area. If you're anywhere in the United States, you can get help from Manhattan Medical around their innovative surgery-free, painless approach to solving erectile dysfunction. Most people think that it's only about those expensive blue pills. Many people cannot use that solution because of comorbidities and side effects. Manhattan Medical utilizes a new effective therapy. When I say new, it's been around for a long time in Europe, proven to, to work. It's been around in Canada as well for some time. It's new to the United States, and it's a therapy for ED called Gainswave. It has no side effects for the vast majority of patients, wonderful results and enduring results that end up being a lot less costly than being constantly uh, using pills. I'm going to give out the number for Manhattan Medical's Cure for Erectile Dysfunction, 888-ED-CURE-9. That's 888-ED-CURE-9. I'll give out the, the numbers, fully in numbers, not letters in a moment. I just want to say before we wrap up that if you heard, if you tell Manhattan Medical, that you heard about their ED therapy on equal footing on this radio program, you get a free consultation. And that's a $250 value. You won't get that if you just call in on your own. I'm going to give out the number one more time. Manhattan Medical mentioned you heard about it on equal footing and get a $250 free consultation for their ED cure therapy, 888-332-8739. That's 888-332-8739. Eight seven three nine. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on I've been told. All right, we've entitled this program "Living in Limbo," and Keshet Star, you work with um, women, Jewish women that are in this kind of limbo state. What's that about? To, to educate us on. The concept or the reality, I should say, of Agunot. Absolutely. So essentially, as we discussed in Jewish law, you need a Jewish divorce that's totally separate from the civil divorce. So even if you are divorced under the laws of the state, you still need this separate Jewish divorce. And what happens without it is that you're really stuck. You can't remarry within the community, and you can't even go out on a date, which a lot of people don't realize. You're considered to be just as married as you were on your wedding day. 
And what that does to people is it creates a situation where all the stress and the limbo of the divorce ends up carrying on not only for the active part of the divorce, but it can go on for years and even decades. And as with anything difficult, when you're in it, you don't know when it's going to end. So it's not like you know this is going to take three years or this is going to take six years. For all you know, this could be the rest of your life, and you're trying to live your life with this huge question mark and this tremendous uncertainty. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize, or let me put it as a question, because I am not an expert here. Keshit, is this a modern day problem, or has this been kind of a sensitive issue in our community for a long time? Measured by Jewish, is, in a Jewish sense, meaning centuries and millennia. This has been going on for a very long time. And as you go through the Talmud, there are fascinating conversations about this. What I will say, though, is that it looks a little different in every social context, in every legal context, in every cultural moment. So the types of issues we're dealing with now are not exactly the same as what people were dealing with 200 years ago, but they were dealing with it. This is a a problem that's been a, a consistent challenge in different ways throughout Jewish history. Yeah, you know, I just it's... want to jump in and give your uh, listeners kind of... Uh, some context or, or some examples of what Keshet is speaking about. In yesteryear, the most common form of an aguna, a woman who was chained to her past or to her dead marriage, was the woman whose husband perhaps died in war but wasn't 100% identified or went abroad for business or some other reason and went missing. And for this reason, uh, since ancient times, Jewish men were counseled to write bills of divorce for their wives when they went to war or expected to be gone for a lengthy period of time. Um, you know, much more recently, we had tremendous pains taken to identify, and, and I, I, I'm sorry about the graphic nature of this, but fragments of bodies that were incinerated in 9-11. I can't even begin to tell you the hours and hours and hours of work that went into identifying that so women would be freed and would not become agunot, because according to Jewish law, you need certain knowledge that the husband is dead or there needs to be a bill of divorce. So I think that's what Kesh is talking about when she talks about how it looks different. Today, it's much more about the recalcitrant man, Mm -hmm. uh, the man who decides he's going to withhold the get. Uh, Why? Well... He recognizes that this system, which actually was enacted to safeguard a woman's dignity and station, can be weaponized. And he might do that in the hopes of extorting money, custodial rights, other demands, or just because he's a sadist and he can and he wants her to suffer. It's completely awful. And, and that's why a woman in this situation is referred to as an aguna. She's chained. Yeah. And, and it, it's a... Um... It's, there's a, it's a long, this problem has a long and painful history. I, I don't want to shy away from the tough stuff. I mean, is it true that, I'll direct this to both of you, is it true that, that part of the issue here is this rabbinic law that we've talked about in other contexts on this program that women are ineligible to testify as a witness? And this, that you're kind of referring to in 9-11, so it, it, it makes it, it does that, is that like an added layer of complexity? It's, it's a law that, is problematic for a lot of people for other reasons as well. Um, you know, Keshet's the one with the, with the. You know, when I say the, law, I mean, I mean halach, I mean uh, Jewish right, religious law. I know, law. I mean and I think she law. has, you know, the real time experience. But it's my understanding that that's not the main issue here at all. 
Kesha, and I would echo. Yeah, I would echo that. What I think is an important piece to realize, and this is exactly the kind of tough thing that's not fun or comfortable to discuss, but one of the layers to this is that under Jewish law, if a woman whose marriage hasn't formally ended, whether it's because, you know, husband went on a business trip and, you know, on a boat somewhere and never came back, or because he's refusing to get, if she were to then start a new relationship and have children in that relationship, those children would be considered illegitimate under Jewish law, and they would not be able to marry freely within the Jewish community. So there's a real generational piece here And many women, regardless of of what they might want for themselves, are also very conscious about making sure that their future children have options available to them and aren't barred from joining certain communities. So I would say that aspect of Jewish law, I think, is a huge motivating factor here, more so than the witness piece. And does this does this matter as much outside of Israel as it matters in Israel? I have a couple even as of now, we have two listeners asking that question, that this is a more operative issue in Israel than outside. Do you, do you want to address that, Keshe? Are these listeners right? Sure. And the question is the issue specifically of illegitimacy or overall the Aguna issue? It sounds like overall, but go for both angles. Sure. Yeah, so I would say the challenge is really similar in Israel and outside. It's just flipped. So in Israel, there's no separation between church and state. That means whether you're observant or not, you have to follow these rules. So you have women that are agunot for decades who aren't observant in the first place, and that's a real challenge. And there's the Israeli system can sometimes be slow and bureaucratic in a way that can make it very difficult to process these cases. Outside of Israel, we almost have the opposite problem, which is that if you go to a Jewish court in the United States and they say, you know, Mr. Goldberg, you need to give your wife a get, and he says, no, thank you, there is not a whole lot that they can legally do to then encourage this person to cooperate with the get process. And so the challenge we have in the diaspora is that we don't have great enforcement options. And a huge part of our work at ORA is building more enforcement options because a lot of it comes down to how can you motivate someone to do something that they don't want to do when you're in a legal environment where there's not a whole lot you can do to enforce what you would like them to do. That's really interesting. I didn't think of that. So like in, in Israel, you could, ha- you could have a, a someone who's a, a you know, Jewish culturally but maybe doesn't even practice at all or maybe doesn't even believe in god who does alias and is trying to get a divorce and for whatever reason maybe there's a manipulation of the system or there's obstinacy and does not obtain a get and they're naguna even though they may not really identify with religious law elsewise in their life absolutely and then you've got religious if i understand you correctly you've got probably very from communities observant communities here that feel like you know, heck, this, this is too easy. It's too easy for people to get the the civil divorce, and re- the, the religious law isn't important enough. Absolutely. And one important thing to realize is that when someone is withholding a get for a long time, they're violating Jewish law. They are not in compliance with what Jewish law demands of them. But just like we don't put people in prison for eating bacon cheeseburgers in the United States, even though that is uh, very much not kosher, 
we also can only do so much to someone who's violating Jewish law in this manner. And so it's, it's a violation of Jewish law. It's not in the spirit of Jewish law. The question is, what kinds of teeth do you have to address when people are violating these laws? Interesting. We need to take our first break in a moment, but I want to, there's a caller on line three here who's been patient and I think has a question along these lines. Caller, can you hear me? I hear you. Welcome to Equal Footing. Thank you. I, I, want, to, I want to expand upon what's happening in Israel. Uh, that first of all, if a man does not want to give a get and it's been so deemed that he's supposed to give a get, they can take away his passport, they can throw him in prison, they can, the many things can be done against him, but he can still refuse because it, it has to be done with free will. Also, there are women who do not want to receive a get. They're also put under certain pressure. This is point, very important for this information. At the very beginning, I wanted to correct one thing. You, you, all you need is religious divorce in Israel. You don't need a secular, like you said, religious and secular at the very beginning. Let me point out one thing. So, wait, wait, caller, uh, pause for a second. Keshet and Rivka, is he right? The get, can, the get has to be willingly given by the husband and willingly received by the wife. So the process can absolutely fail on either side, and our organization works with some men whose wives are not accepting the get. That being said, it is for us about 95% one way, 5% the other way. So the numbers are, are really not even from what we see. But again, it can absolutely happen on both directions. And in terms of the Israel piece, Israel does have a secular process as well. But it is still true that for someone who's not observant, there's no separate secular divorce that they can pursue that's outside of the religious divorce. Their personal status is still determined by halacha if they're Jewish and they live in the state of Israel. Gotcha. Caller, quickly, quickly. One very important thing, hello, regarding the the illegitimate children, if if a man and wife were married, not according to Jewish law, Rabbi Henkin says, even if they were married in in, in City Hall, they should try, they should give a get. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says, you don't have to give a get, but I will say, I recommend it because he bent his will to Rabbi Henkin. But still, there are cases where Rabbi Feinstein Allowed, I know a case where someone, where the wife was drunk and she didn't want to receive a get, the man was able to marry. In other words, it's very, very important because you will not have illegitimate children if they were married by a reformed rabbi and they were not witnesses there. I will tell you a case. I work in oh. India, and oh. in India I, I, I nullified two marriages. We tried to give a get. They didn't want to take it. I wrote out a special document. They were able to remarry without a get according to Shuva Sarajba, according to Rabbi David Feinstein. In other words, it, it has to be a religious, authentic ceremony with witnesses in order for it to, for it to be called Ashafish, a married woman. He's a married man married to her. If it's not according to strict Jewish law, according to Rabbi Feinstein, then it is not. And if somehow she, they, they get a civil divorce, and they don't get a religious divorce, and she remarries, the children are not mamzerim. They're not illegitimate children. Interesting. That's the reality. By the way, caller, do you want to identify yourself? I should have asked you if you want to introduce um, yourself. I, was, I go to India a lot, and I, I have to be beneath the radar, but my okay. name is Shlomo. Okay, okay but, you're, uh, you're a rabbi. I, I was, yeah, I was okay. there before Chabad got there, and I gotcha. was able to Shlomo, it, Rabbi, it's a, it's a, it's great to you call because actually right, like after, this, right after the break, right very, after the break, we're going to talk about the role of of the rabbis in the process. I appreciate your again, your call. So we're, uh, let's uh, take a break. We'll be right back with Rivka Slonim and Keshet Star. Living in limbo, the unfortunate and uh, tragic dynamic, really, of women that are in a state where they can't remarry. 
um, not obtaining a divorce document under Jewish religious law. We'll be right back. Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. So right before the break, we had, uh, I guess, Rabbi Shlomo call in, and actually I wanted to ask you both, what is the role of the base din, the Jewish ecclesiastical court, and rabbis specifically, or positive or negative, in this process and in resolving the the Agunot issue? Well, Rabbi Shlomo uh, threw a lot of information at all of us very, very quickly. Um, so... First, to more generally address your question of what is the role of the rabbis. Uh, so while I began with saying that there are rules and halakha is understood as being rooted in divine will, but I will say that one of the most audacious ideas in Jewish theology is the partnership of man with God, which is most prominently exhibited in what is referred to as the oral tradition. And the specifics of Jewish practice have evolved and continue to do so to some extent, um, but that's very different than saying it's completely malleable. It's not like clay in the hands of a sculptor. So regarding the laws of divorce, sadly, because the way it's set up gives rise to a very real vulnerability on the part of a woman, uh, there have always been attempts to address this. Beginning as early as the 5th century, before the Common Era, there were already changes to marriage and divorce processes intended to address this. And this continued to unfurl through the periods of the Tanoim and the Amoraim. Um, and the biggest change probably came roughly a thousand years ago with Rabbi Gershom, often referred to as Rabbi Gershom Meor Hagola in the year 1000 of the Common Era. And he enacted a decree that severely limited the power of a husband to divorce his wife against her will. Mm-hmm. Um, and the process of attending to this vulnerability and, and the wish to protect women is something that has continued. I was always taken very, very seriously. For instance, the Code of Jewish Law prohibits a Jewish court from judging or operating in any capacity on the Sabbath. But the Mishnah Brura, very important book of Jewish code, rules that in the case of a recalcitrant husband, it's permitted for a Jewish court to lock him up on the Sabbath so he will not escape. Um, we also can't talk about the subject without mentioning or at least bring in for a moment uh, Maimonides' iconic ruling on the subject. Uh, of course, 
I think this was spoken of quickly earlier, that a man has to give the divorce of his own free will, and yet Maimonides ruled that if a husband refuses to do so, uh, you basically bring him in and, and beat him up. Tilly says, I want but, to do this. But uh, we had, we've had Rabbi Simon Jacobson on the last couple of weeks, and we had a couple of callers that actually called on this issue of the problem of the Yagunot. And, uh, Keshet, it, it, it's, I, it sounds good what, what Rivka is saying. It sounds like there's strong, uh, kind of sense of, of women's rights in the situation, and there's, uh, I guess, empathy about the issue in the rabbinate. But there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there uh, around cases that are not resolved, um, and it's extremely painful. People are sometimes situation for decades. So, can you talk to us about the intransigent cases? Like, when when are uh, Aguna cases not resolved, and what can be done to to break the impasse? And speak about what has emerged as the single most effective prophylactic, uh, let's just say, safeguard. Absolutely. So I will say to give you a sense of what these cases look like, when a couple's getting divorced, you know, it's not uncommon, again, to have a hostile divorce. No one is uh, their ex-spouse's biggest fan. That's very common. But in some divorces, they go to this territory of kind of an extreme high-conflict divorce. And these are terrible. They're terrible for kids when they're involved. They're terrible for communities. There are many communities that have been split up by terrible divorces where everyone chooses sides. They really have a fallout. And especially in these types of divorces, it's not uncommon for the get to become sort of a sticking point and a source for revenge. We also really see the get as a form of domestic abuse. And it's usually not the first time there's domestic abuse. It's usually a relationship where there is a pattern for a long time of one person wanting to hold on to the other person and to and for dominate. Those are, and for those that are tuning in late, the get is the divorce dissolution document under Jewish religious law. Yes, absolutely. And so when there's been a history and a pattern of control, that often, again, goes into the divorce process. And the get, while I don't know that, I don't think any of us who are, you know, faithful Jewish people, we don't believe that it was intended to be used this way. But in practice, the get can sometimes be an opportunity for an abuser to hold on to control. And what we find is that a especially with these terrible cases, they can go on for years, easily two, three, five years, not uncommon 10 years, 20 years. And again, you don't have a tremendous amount of cases that are going to that 10, 15, 20-year mark, but they're out there. There's not only two of them. And because people know that this can happen, that creates a huge anxiety and can really impact the way that people negotiate and the way right. that they function in the divorce process. Not to get too wonky, but from a legal perspective, that creates kind of a moral hazard because the man knows that he's got that, that kind of that uh, arrow in the quiver, even if it's not used. Precisely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, for that reason, and I'm so glad you kind of teed me up for this, Rick, that one thing that we advocate for very enthusiastically at ORA is for couples to sign what's called a halachic prenuptial agreement. And it's a prenup, but it's not the kind of prenup that makes you think of Hollywood couples and everyone trying to protect their assets. 
it's basically a document where a couple sits down before they get married and they make an agreement that in the event that, you know, God forbid we separate and we don't agree on what should happen with the Jewish divorce, we are agreeing now that we're going to go to one particular religious court to handle our case and that if the court orders one of us to give the debt and we don't do that, we don't cooperate with the process, then we'll have to pay our spouse $150 a day. And that is basically to acknowledge a support obligation that's under Jewish law. So the idea here like a wor- it's a workaround. It's a workaround. Yeah. And the idea essentially is that by enforcing this Jewish obligation, the idea is that if you want to stay married, great. Marriage under Jewish law comes with responsibilities. So for every day that you choose to continue this marriage under Jewish law, you need to pay yourself this support obligation. And that creates a financial incentive to deal with the get early on. And what I tell couples all the time is that the only thing you're giving up here is the opportunity to be abusive about the get later on. You have every other right you walked in right. here with. It must with. be pretty tough <laughs> for the for the husband to say no to that a priori before getting married because it's a it's not like like you said it's not a complex financial prenup we're talking about splitting up of assets it's basically saying i'm not going to use this loophole or i'm not going to use this hammer later on um so that that's that's sensible i I don't mean to cut you off but i want to get to some different uh, questions that have come up with um some some listeners and i and i want to applaud this one more thing because i think it's important for your listeners to hear this shoot you know the um the figure that Kesh had mentioned comes to $54,000 a year. But that's just the bottom figure. In other words, there's no ceiling. If a couple of great means gets married and $54,000 is nothing to them, then it could be as much as $2,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 a day. But at some point, a figure is going to bite into the finances, and it's a tremendous incentive to get the get. Right. No pun intended. <laughs> Get that get. Okay. I want to applaud this uh, listener who has, um, when you hear what he's sharing, you'll, you'll understand that he doesn't want to share his name, but I just want to applaud you because, uh, as we've talked about so many times over the years, the first step in, in dealing with, uh, trauma in, um, in, in kind of, uh, evolving and getting through the other side of something extremely difficult is talking about it. Um, and this listener uh, shares a, a long message, which I will uh, take a small part of, um, that uh, I recently moved to Israel um, to my great shock and to my wife's great shock. I found out that I am a Safar mam- Safik Mamzer. Um, be my, in short, uh, my mother did not obtain a get um, and I was, quote unquote, illegitimate. I learned this at 37 years old. He he goes on. This is um you guys want one of you want to address what the, what this is about and uh, Rabbi Shlomo called in before kind of alluded to this issue of children being illegitimate. And I guess um how do you solve this? What is it? Why? How does it relate to the to tonight's program? And if you're in that situation, if you're in this caller situation, is there a solution? I'll just begin and then uh, yield to Keshet. Um, so as we said before, if a woman does not obtain the get, she may not remarry without said get. But more profoundly, if she has children with another man while still halakhically married to her former husband, 
her children become what is referred to in Hebrew as mamzerim, which should not be confused with a bastard or a child out of wedlock. It's specifically um, a child born to a woman who becomes pregnant from another man other than her current husband. And um, unfortunately, mamzerut is the most severe, let's call it spiritual congenital condition, and it has all kinds of ramifications on the child's life and the lives of their descendants. And like all other um, congenital conditions, it's not fear because the child never yeah. did anything to bring this upon themselves. So based, sorry, I want to interrupt just so you understand the context. I don't, I don't want to read the, the, the whole um, comment here, but it, um, this is someone who moved from, did Aliyah, moved from the United States uh, to Israel, and uh, his parents were not religious uh, oh. and got divorced, and um, he is not religious, as self-described, and so this is this has got to be a great shock, and I just want to make sure I'm I'm getting this right. Um, so this the situation here, as I understand it, is that the his mother was previously married, and mm-hmm. then uh, married his father, Correct. and did and never obtained a get, so never actually broke the ketubah or had a proper religious divorce. And in Israel, the religious authorities now consider him illegitimate. Well, wherever he might be as a Jew, whether Israel, America, or, you know, Mauritius, I mean, he, if he is a mamzer, he's a mamzer. If he's not, he's not. And unfortunately, he is not alone. And if one most important thing could come out of tonight's program, it would be for people listening to understand that, you know, everybody has choice about how observant or non-observant they're going to be. But when it comes to issues of marriage, divorce, and conversion, you're talking about issues that are going to bleed into the next generation and the next and the next. Um, so, yes, it's shocking to him and so many others when they find out that they're living with the real ramifications of their parents' choices. Now, so I don't case, want to go too far up topic. This sounds like a whole other show, but I it just it, this underlines how tragic this can be. Even if you're absolutely. listening to this program, you think, well, I'm not observant. It's not really up my alley, but it... It can affect your children, your children's children. And if they, you know, yeah, it's a, it, it sounds like it's a permanent condition to be a mamzer, as you said, to, to be in the situation that this man is in. And is it, is there any remedy to it, Rivka? Can it, can, can he the become a mamzer? Shlomo tried to, to, um, throw this at us. Yeah. Um, he correctly uh, cited one of the greatest gifts that Harav Moshe Feinstein of Blessed Memory gave this generation is that, um, I mean, it's kind of a backhanded, uh, well, I'll just say, what he said was that if the marriage wasn't halakhically valid to begin with, then in Jewish law, it's simply not a marriage, in which case the child born of the mom who didn't get a Jewish divorce after that initial marriage is not a momser because she was never married to begin with, according to Jewish law. And by doing this... So what is is he then under Jewish law? Yeah, so he freed a lot of people from this very unfortunate rubric called Mamzerut in that way. So the person who's calling you from Israel needs, uh, the first thing they need to do, I hope they've already been told this, but maybe not, um, they need to research what kind of marriage that first marriage was. Uh, Because if there weren't, for instance, kosher uh, witnesses or there was some other flaw, and it's not considered a Jewish marriage, then in fact he would not be a Mamzer, and I... I sincerely hope that is the case for him. 
another listener here, Keshit, I'm going to uh, direct this um, uh, to you. Ooh, sure. we're, we're, we're overdue. Actually, you know what? I'm going to get to that listener's uh, question after the break. We'll yeah. be right and back. And if I can, absolutely, with, though, if I can, can just can it, share Can one. it wait for a second just to our next commercial sure, break? You okay. got it. We're on with Keshit Starr and Rivka Slonim talking about the phenomenon of the Aguna, or a woman who's chained, in a sense, is not yet freed from their religious marriage. You're on equal footing, and we'll be right back. Equal Footing is brought to you in part by Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital provides financing to watch dealers and watch collectors in as little as one day. You can get money for your watch collection or your watch inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's easy buyback contracts. Go on your smartphone and put in these three words in your app store, Mechanical Art Capital. The whole process can take like five minutes. Just upload some photos of the watches. You get an offer back and you can get your money the next day. Uh, you also have a valuable appraisal for insurance purposes. And a lot of our listeners in the watch industry, check out Mechanical Art Capital. You can also go to their website, mechanicalartcapital.com. And you can call as well if you want to take advantage of their overnight financing program. You don't actually have to part with your watches. You're just getting money against that inventory. The number to call is 833 833- Two zero nine zero nine seven two. Again, that's for Mechanical Art Capital's watch financing program. Eight three three two zero nine zero nine seven two. I've been caught. Keshit, keeping keeping I did that ad real quick for you, so you wouldn't lose your train of thought. Keshit, you there? With the previous caller, if they're still on. But there's an organization called ITIM, I-T-I-M, in Israel that helps Israelis navigate sort of Jewish personal status issues. Mm -hmm. And so I would really recommend the caller reach out to them to see if, if they can offer some support. For the most part, though, once you're in this Manzirut status, it's really difficult. And mm -hmm. so that's why the prevention is so important and also making sure that when a get is given that it's done validly and there's no concerns about how kosher, so to speak, that get is later on. Great. you want to say the, the name of that organization one more time for folks that are listening? Sure. It's called E-Team, I-T-I-M. Team. Okay. I want to get to another listener's comment. We kind of sort for the more difficult ones. We're going to shy, we're going to shy away from controversy. Um, so a listener writes that we are avoiding the core issue. A lot of this is related to abusive relationships. Domestic abuse is a pervasive issue in our, in our community, pardon me. Um, and specifically that we're putting it under the rug. Most of the men that are not giving a get are engaged in domestic abuse. Let's be real. Uh, should address that yes. immediately. She didn't throw it under any rug. I did hear an allusion to domestic abuse. Let me ask the question this way, a little bit less charged. Keshit, how many of the cases where you have a, a um, an, an intransig intransigent husband or you the, the process of getting the divorce dissolution document, the get, is kind of gobbed up 
How many of the situations would you say are dynamics where there's been an abusive relationship? I would say over 95%. Oh, God. So this, so this listener is right. Someone, not that, yes, not and that they're putting why, it under the rug, but that this is a core part of the issue. It is absolutely a core part of the issue. And what I will say is a real missing piece in our community and outside of our community, too. We do not understand abuse once we move beyond physical violence. We understand that one person hitting another person is, is not a good thing. But when it comes to psychological abuse, I've had so many really reasonable people who will say, well, you know, I get into fights with my husband and, you know, I'm married. When I get into a fight with my husband, it's not like, oh, sugar plum, would you please? Yes, there's anger in healthy relationships, but if you've not seen these relationships up close, it can be really hard to understand what non-physical abuse looks like. And what we've identified in the abuse community is that the really dangerous thing is not even physical violence. It's this thing called coercive control, which is one person wanting to dominate the other person. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, people will destroy their own lives in order to be able to control the other person. It's very dangerous. And if someone is calling me with a textbook case of domestic abuse, I will bet money that the get is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. What we have seen, though, and I think this is so important for people to know is that even in these situations, we've seen successful results with prenuptial agreements because they click in early on and abusers want to be seen as a really nice guy. They care enormously about their image. At that point in the relationship. So glad you said that, Tessa. I think that that adds another layer of complexity. Very often, uh, some of these men are big donors. They're big machers. Mm -hmm. Um, they have this public persona that they have burnished to a shine, and the community just thinks the woman must be crazy that she's making these accusations and what have yeah. you, and it becomes just another layer of abuse and, and tremendous pain. You know, we had a show, I think it was last year, and we had Rabbi uh, Y.Y. Jacobson on, who um, it's a great educator, and, and a caller um, was bringing up the kind of inherent patriarchy, as they put it, in in the Jewish faith. And, and he stopped the mid-sentence, and I just thought this is interesting, maybe for listeners to hear, and he said, in the, in the Talmud, it specifically says that God counts her tears when it comes to a wife who's, who's um, I guess, uh, dealing with... Um, with these types of issues and nowhere does it say God counts his tears. And there's a, there's a special um, place as I, as I understand it um, within rabbinic wisdom, within Talmud around a real empathy and, around these issues and an encouragement to lean in. Um, that's, which is what we're trying to do here tonight. I, okay. You know what? Our wonderful producer, Leah, just came into the studio and I'm, uh, she always, uh, I'm a little nervous. Here we go. Usually your questions are criticizing me. What's up? <laughs> no. Hi guys. I just, uh, I had a, I had a question that I don't think we've, uh, we've, we've touched quite in this particular way. Um, when it comes to religious divorce, I think the majority um, of these divorces or marriages also have lots of children included. So my question is, what happens to these children? And does a father who withholds a get, who is abusive, uh, have a right to see his children? Like what, how do, who protects the children? I'm so glad you asked, because when I spoke earlier about the extra level of pain and, and agony, 
so much of it surrounds the children who are very, most often caught in a crossfire between the spouses. Um, and that's another thing to think about, which is why this program is so important, which is why Keshet's organization is so important. It's so important that we educate the community as to how important that prenuptial agreement is uh, because there are not just women, but lots and lots of children suffering. And I'll add on that note, too, in an ideal world, when a couple gets divorced, mom and dad sit down with a mediator on their own, whatever works, and they come up with an arrangement for the kids that they can both live with. And when that's not possible, when that doesn't happen, the next best option is for a neutral third party to make a call. So a judge, a, you know, a religious court judge, an arbitrator, someone says, this is what we're going to do. And what happens sometimes is that it's not uncommon for someone to say, I'm not giving the get until or unless I get a custody arrangement that I think is fair. And that's something that can be very dangerous for children because some of these men are not dangerous to their children. Some of them may well be. And today it's very uncommon for a parent to not get custody. That That's not typical. I, people have this idea that mothers get custody all the time. It's never fathers. That's really not what's happening in family courts today. And so a huge part of our message at ORA is that whatever's happening with the kids, work it out together. If you can't, allow a third party to make a decision, but don't introduce the get into a conversation about the kids because that runs the risk of further traumatizing survivors of abuse and putting children at risk. And so we really always want to be mindful. Kids have the most to lose in this process. They are the most voiceless in this process. So their safety and their health and the best arrangement for them has to be protected. And you would be surprised how often it happens that custody is made contingent on the get being given, that they're connected. You want the get, you're going to agree to a custody arrangement that you don't think is healthy for these kids. And that's something that as a community, we really cannot allow to happen. So we, we have, have a, to let we're about to run up on time. We have, as always, a lot of great questions that come in uh, right at the end. A couple of folks have just wanted to tell you guys um, to continue your good work. Uh, and uh, one listener just wrote from a 718 area code. I don't have a name here. How incredible that the Torah cares about the women's, about women's rights before anyone else. Excellent program. So people are really giving you guys kudos. Just wanted to say, so you hear that on the air. Um, we, we're out of time. Can you guys just, just in a quick soundbite, just refer people to your organizations again if they're having this issue or they know someone in the community that's dealing with this issue? Absolutely. I'll say for us, we're ORA. Our website is www.getora.org. And you can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. We have a Jewish divorce helpline that people call just to learn more or ask questions. And we are just a non-judgmental safe space to get information, get advice, and really move a situation forward. Rivka, how do they find you? First of all, what she said. Uh, second, I, I don't have a particular concentration in this. I'm a Jewish educator, and my message to your listeners is this is so important to be educated on and to act on because, as is abundantly clear, the ramifications are intergenerational, and nobody wants to do that to their children. Amen. Not in the present and not in the future. Thank you both for joining us. Hope to have you on again. 
Thank you so much.